and Pastor Matthew Steinfeld. And we're very glad that you're here, even though the summer weather is no longer with us. If you would stand and join us as we sing our first hymn this morning, number 433, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, hymn 433. Blessed is the Lord, for he has heard the voice of our prayer. 
Therefore shall our hearts dance for joy, and in our song we will praise our God. A responsive reading from Psalm 113. You can find it in the middle sheet of uh, your order of worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats in the princes with the princes of the people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Our second hymn this morning is 451. It is well with my soul. M451.
who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. This is the word of the Lord. And our second reading is from 2 Corinthians 1 on the back page. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now that the Lord is over your faith, now that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're a guest with us, we normally stand for the gospel reading, so if you would join us. Gospel readings from Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told them, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to you, O Christ. You can have a seat. What is your joy? What do you find joy in, ultimately? And I guess I shouldn't assume what your joy is. I should ask you first, do you have joy? Do you have peace in your life? I don't mean happiness. You can find happiness in a bottle, either plastic or glass. But do you have joy? And is it in the gospel? And if it's not, why? The second question, what are the promises that you've put in God's mouth? Meaning the promises that you want for yourself, but you said, oh, God must want that for me. But they may not be from God. What are the promises that you put in God's mouth? And lastly, who's working with you for your joy? Who is your community? 
that is there with you to fight for your joy. Okay? Do you have joy? What are the promises you have in God's that you put in God's mouth and who's working with you for your joy? Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, the second reading. If you are familiar at all with Paul's letters to the Corinthians, this being the second, you know already that this church is scandalous. There's sexual immorality, there's lawsuits, there's, there's, there's divisions, there's power struggles. And here we find Paul writing a second letter to them to address these issues. And he starts in verse 20, he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Now what promises is he talking about that God has made? If you look at it from a Jewish perspective, the earliest promises are to Abraham, that Abraham would have a promised son, and out of this son would be descendants that would be a nation, that they would have their own land, that they would be a blessing, but not a blessing for them to hold, but a blessing so that they may be a blessing to others. Now, unfortunately, the Jews took this privilege and this election, you could call it, and they made it selfish. They started to focus inward. They started to say, ah, God has chosen us and we're special. And therefore, we're going to act accordingly. But also, we're going to assume that God wants what we want. And if he doesn't bring us what we want, then we will abandon God, which is what happens consistently. They even looked for a king to replace God as their leader. Notice that God has these promises that he's given to Abraham, and yet Abraham's descendants have promises of their own that they put into the mouth of God that they want for themselves, and they don't seem to match. What are the promises that you expect from God? What are those things that you secretly want and desire that you might be saying, God wants this for me. Why? Because I want it for me. What's interesting is that a lot of the things that the Israelites wanted were the things that God wanted to give them, but they didn't want it the way that God wanted to give it. So they went around God. Abraham never saw the promises other than his son, that he would have a son. Never saw the promised land, never saw his great nation. But what did he see in the midst of this, even though his fulfillment wasn't realized? The text says that he knew God, that he spoke to him face to face. And all his troubles and all his, his own scandals. We see that there was some level of comfort or joy or hope and peace that God was with him. And he was. Now, Paul is speaking to a very similar group as the Israelites. And he says, all of these promises God has made including the promises made to Abraham, are now yes in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham. Paul's saying that everything that they could have wished for or wanted are achieved in Christ. Interesting. What has Christ accomplished where he can say that? Well, first of all, I think everybody knows that in order to be a Christian, your faith is in Christ for salvation from sin. That's something that he's accomplished. But also, as we'll see in this text, that Christ has given the believer the Spirit of God. And in the same way that Abraham and his people were looking for a, a nation, freedom, really, their own people, and the blessing from God so Christ is giving us salvation 
the Spirit as a unified body of believers, but also blessing as well. What does that mean for you today, what Christ has accomplished? Does it mean anything special to you in this moment right now? Or is it religion? Is it something that we do? Is it something that we do on Sunday? Do you see the effects of what Christ has accomplished in your life today? Think about this. What if everything that you ever wanted or wished for, whether it was professional or personal, or maybe it was a hobby or something you wished to learn, or something that you want to achieve, what if everything you ever wanted came from knowing God? through Jesus. That almost sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? It almost sounds like pseudo-spiritual. Matthew, what do you want out of life? I just want to know God. Right? It almost sounds corny. Maybe so because we've heard it and we haven't necessarily seen it. But are we of the same mind of Christ and Paul that we can say that Everything that God has promised me that is good for me has come through the person of Jesus. Now, the problem with the Israelites and even the earliest examples from the beginning of Genesis is that our wants and our desires and our goals often keep us from realizing what God has for us. There's that nagging question And the reason why I think it sounds corny for us to say that we want God above everything else is because a lot of us secretly don't. A lot of us secretly have our own passions and desires and wishes. And just like the very first two people in the story, there's that question, is God holding out on me? Can I really trust that what he has for me is what's best? And of course, that's where sin comes in, is when we go to seek and accomplish what we want and desire as we walk around God, as the Israelites did. Now, he says that in verse 20, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What's he mean by this? It means that unless we are of the same mind as Christ, unless we have the Spirit of God in us, the promises that are fulfilled through God's work will not be recognized unless we have that Spirit. The Spirit that God gives us allows us to see what God has accomplished and for us to agree and say, Amen. Otherwise, it's overlooked. And it's pushed aside to something that we learned in church when we were young, maybe. Now notice what he says here about this spirit that causes us to see the the work of God and his promises accomplished in his glory. Verse 21, now it's God who makes us both, us, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. 22, he set his seal of ownership on us. Put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. It's God that strengthens us through the spirit. Now Paul is saying us and you, meaning him and his team that's traveling around, that's outside of this church. He is in the extreme areas of the Roman Empire, often in hostile territory. He's saying that this spirit, even though what he suffers and his his comfort is taken away, and oftentimes he's shipwrecked, and oftentimes he's hungry, that the Spirit is empowering him to do the work of Christ, which is really quite miraculous. But he's also saying, within your scandalous, broken, conflict-ridden church is the same Spirit that's working in you How How is Christ or how is the Spirit working in the life of Paul and in Corinth? He says he anointed us. He said his seal of ownership. 
this word deposit is just as you would imagine. If you pay a down payment on a home, that deposit is saying, I am good for this amount of money and the rest is coming, I promise. Typically, this would, this would represent someone's uh, ability or trustworthiness to say what they're going to do and do what they're actually promising. Let me ask you a strange question that might seem out of context. What's your idea of heaven? We all have this thought of what it is. Maybe it's just complete comfort. Or maybe there's no people there. And you're all alone and you're happy and you can't be bothered. Or there's music. Or there's angels. Or there's infinite food. Whatever your idea of heaven is. Paul and Jesus are saying that heaven is when you receive 100% of the payment of the Spirit. And that you actually have the down payment of what paradise is. See, right now we have the presence of God in us as image bearers, as believers. But one day it will be 100% paid and we will see the full extent of God's glory, of God's peace, of God's joy. Is that your perception of the Spirit of God in you now? Do you have a down payment of the ultimate peace and joy in God? Or is it some nice beliefs, grape juice and wafer once a month, and coffee and tea after a nice service? See, what are the promises you have put in God's mouth? Because God's promise for you is the Spirit and His presence. It's not circumstances, you see. Just like Abraham. Abraham's life was really kind of tragic in a lot of ways. He did a lot of bad things. He often didn't have faith. He often doubted. He often was frustrated. And yet somehow God's presence with him made the difference. Who's working with you for your joy? Paul says something for as strict as he sometimes sounds. He says something very, very strange here that, that you might miss if you don't pay attention. In verse 23, he says, I, got, I call God as my witness. He's, he's making an oath here. And I stake my life on it. That it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now, what is he talking about? What is, how could him not coming to Corinth spare them? Well, as we know, the church in Corinth was really, really bad. And Paul planted them. In a way, Paul is responsible for them, or so he feels. He often calls himself their spiritual father. But Paul is saying, it is not in my best interest right now to come back with you and to slap your wrist and to tell you to clean your life up. Even though it might seem that that's exactly what they need. After all, they are Christians. After all, they're claiming the gospel. They're claiming to have the Spirit of God within them. Like the Israelites, they are promising and entered into a covenant to do what God would lead and promise for them. And yet, all of these events have happened within this church that would, that would seem like it would destroy their relationship with each other. But Paul says, it's not in, my, it's not in your best interest. Why? In order to spare you. Now, what's he mean by this? Now, he says, not that we would lord it over your faith, but that we would work with you for your joy. I am terribly afraid that so many of us think that our Christian faith is us living up to what God hopes for us. That we come here and repent because this week we lived like the Israelites and like the Corinthians. And really that the down spirit 
the down payment of the Spirit is not there to, to make your guilty conscience on 100% tilt. It's to remind you that God is working with you for your joy. Actually, He's working it Himself through the Spirit. And in the same way, Paul is saying, it's, it's best for me to spare you because if I return to Corinth, it would be too much. So too, Jesus is saying that. He's saying, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve because it's too much for you to bear if you had to live up to my requirements. Do you have someone in your life that is working with you for your joy? Whether you're a professor or an ambassador or a broker of lumber or a housewife, whatever you do, do you have people in your life that are working for your joy based on the gospel? Because Paul is saying it's essential. The last thing that I would ever say up here, having, especially having read a passage like this, is to say, Never tell anybody where you fall short. It's best just to keep your Christianity to yourself and to keep it at home and to come on Sundays and repent and hope God forgives you. That's not what Paul's saying. Yes, there's salvation for, from sins, but there is joy and there's peace and there's hope. There is hope. Not happiness based on circumstances. Not empty promises of the world that we put into the mouth of God that make us feel better. If, if only we had this or that. That your very idea of heaven, or rather God's idea of heaven, of paradise for you, being completely holy in His presence, is actually something you have access to right now in part. Lastly, he says, you stand by faith firmly. By faith, you stand firm. He means this two ways, I think. One is, in the presence of God, you stand firm because you are being accused daily by your enemy. You're being prosecuted against. And Jesus is standing there at your defense with a perfect defense case. And you stand firm. You stand innocent because of what he's done. Okay, in terms of righteousness. But there's this whole other element, too, that Paul's talking about, and that's in the daily life. That yes, you are saved and you have salvation through Christ, but you have also been given his spirit that should provide joy and hope and peace in your life right now. And I dare ask you, if you don't have that, what is your hope in? If you want it to be on Christ and on His fullness, His fulfillment of these promises, and you find it lacking, Maybe, just maybe, there's something else that you want more. And it may be something good, but it may not be something ultimate. Paul wants to work with them for their joy. Last question, is this your experience in the church? The people around you want your joy. Do they know that you don't have it or that you're seeking it? Do you have peace? What's your joy in?
Is it in the gospel? If not, why? What are the promises you put in God's mouth? In other words, what are the things that you want that you think are coming from God or ought to come from God, but he doesn't want to give you? And who's working with you for your joy? Who's your community who's reminding you that your fullness, that your joy and peace is in the gospel? All this other circumstantial stuff is exactly that. We normally take a few moments to reflect on the scriptures and maybe even a moment to check our perspective. Maybe your hope is in Christ and it's, you've experienced great joy this week. Maybe even some victory or some blessing. Something that seemed miraculous, maybe. And that's wonderful. But maybe you're in the midst of something terrible, whether it's your fault or someone else's. And it's stressful and it's painful. And you're thinking, if only this changes, then things will be okay. Please know that what you're missing is not that thing. You can stand firm in the gospel. You can stand firm in the hope that everything that you could ever want for you has already been fulfilled and there's more to come. take a few moments and then we will stand and recite the Apostles' Creed together. So if you would, just take a few moments. Reflect on the goodness of God. If you would, please stand with me and recite the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Not so with you.
me, please. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for passages that remind us that, that you're with us and that everything that you have offered us and given us and fulfilled in Christ can be our ultimate joy and peace. God, I pray that, that we would live in that way and that we would hope in that way and that we would be reminded of the things that you've done, but the things that you're doing and the things that you want to do through our circumstances. Give us power to believe that. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Father, we pray for our country, Lithuania. We pray that you would continue to keep it free and that people would have the opportunity to live in a way that is honoring to you. We pray that you would, would move in this country, that people would come to see the power of the gospel and that we would live in a way that would make that so obvious and attractive. Give us the power as we go into Vilnius or our own towns as we leave. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And to close, we'll recite the Lord's Prayer, and you can recite it in the way in which you feel most accustomed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our last hymn is 464, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, hymn 464.
before the benediction, I wanted to say something that I forgot to say. Uh, our regular organist, Asta, is out of town. And so we wanted to say thank you, Renata, for playing this morning. It's, it was beautiful, and we appreciate you substituting. Now for the benediction. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.